Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Piotr Kuszycki. I'm a history professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. My guest today is Kirill Kunahovic, who is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Virginia. He is the co-editor of the long 1989 Decades of Global Revolution, which came out in 2019 with Central European University Press. And the focus of our conversation today is going to be his new book, Out in late 2022 with Cornell University Press, entitled Communism's Public Sphere, Culture as Politics in Cold War Poland and East Germany. Welcome to the program, Kiro. Thanks, Piotr, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I love the book. I am looking forward to digging right into it. Let me just start out by asking something I ask really almost everyone I have on this program, which is, why did you decide to write about culture in East Germany and Poland? Yes, so lots to unpack there. Uh, but the short answer to your question is I came to it very circuitously. I started out as a Russianist, um, not least because I was born in Russia. And so I think coming into um, graduate school, my animating interest was the Soviet system and how it worked. But also probably in part because of my own experience moving to England and then to the U.S., what I was really interested in was how this system expanded to Europe. Uh, and I settled on Poland and East Germany as logical cases. And the first incarnation of this book was actually trying to understand what it meant to build a socialist culture in these countries. That's what it was designed to be, right? I chose to look at two cities, Krakow and Leipzig. We can talk about why. And I went off into the city archives to read their culture department files to get a sense of what communist officials were thinking how they understood socialist culture, and what it was that they wanted to accomplish. But as I read these files, there were two things that struck me. The first was how much their visions changed over time. And this was a little unexpected because I'd been conditioned to expect continuity, right? The standard story of communist cultural policy is that it's rigid and inflexible. But I found the opposite, that officials were constantly adapting, constantly trying out new strategies, and in fact, struggling to keep up. And then the second thing that struck me was how much attention they paid to popular responses. Again, I came in thinking of cultural policy as a very top-down thing, something imposed by a centralized regime. But the files I was reading were full of bottom-up impressions, how audiences reacted to a film, which shows they liked and which they didn't, um, even opinion polls of what they wanted. And eventually I realized that those two things were intertwined, that officials were adapting in large part because they were responding to the public, that cultural policy was not something solely imposed from above, but rather something negotiated on the ground. And so the book became about that process of negotiation and contestation in cultural spaces, what I ended up calling communism's public sphere. So that's a marvelous overview, both of how you came to the book and of the book itself. I uh, will actually re-ask my question, but maybe in a slightly different way, because I'm curious why specifically, I mean, you mentioned why not the Soviet Union, but why specifically East Germany and Poland? Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a two-part question, right? One part of that is why study them together? I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, the easier answer is probably why those two. And that was entirely for my limitations. Um, those were the languages that I could speak. I figured it made sense to focus on those. But also those were in the middle of the Moscow-Warsaw-Berlin axis, right? I was curious in as I mentioned, communism as a transnational experiment. I was interested in the Eastern Bloc. Poland and East Germany certainly seemed like central to that. Um, 
So in that sense, that's why maybe those two, that's also why not just one, because from the start, the animating idea behind this book was that these are, to some extent, national stories, but they're also more than that, right? I think I realized pretty soon after digging into the archives that these were not two separate stories, but one. And I wanted to tell the story of communism as a transnational phenomenon, as something that transformed and affected Eastern Europe. And these two countries were my vehicles for trying to get at some of those questions. I, I think it works really, really well throughout the book. And of course, I mean, you, you already alluded to this in your first answer, that different parts of the book reflect different phases and that there's a lot less continuity than you might have expected. But if I can ask one question about continuity that maybe you might not expect, or maybe our listeners might not expect, uh, given the, the book is mostly about the the, well, we're entirely about the Cold War era. What about 19th century continuities? You start your first chapter by talking about the sort of long arm of uh, socialist revolutionaries from the late 19th century. And I'm thinking, of course, this is an, an answer you didn't give, but maybe it was on your mind too, that you know, Krakow and Leipzig both function in German language orbits and within the orbit of German language revolutionary socialism. I'm curious if you see that as being a relevant antecedent. So should, let's say we're sitting talking about the production of culture in socialist East Germany and Poland. Does it make sense? to go back to the 19th century is really the 1940s where the story should start. No, you have to go back. Um, you know, I pick up the story in the 1940s after the war, but of course my characters have been on the ground far longer than that, right? And you're right to push it back to the 19th century. There's lots of continuities and traditions that get, get carried over into the new regime. But of course there's just lots of people that, make this communist project on the ground, and all of them have roots, by and large all of them, right, with the exception of a few Soviet exports, have roots uh, in, in the interwar era and some even the pre-war era, right? So um, you're absolutely right to note that this is a story that does not begin with some zero hour, right? This is not a clean slate. This is a story of how communism is at the same time a Soviet import and a homegrown product. And its roots, as you say, I think very fair to say, go to the 19th century. You could obviously trace it back further. I really trace it to the socialist men and women who become some of those first officials, right? Uh, certainly in the cultural sector, most of these are figures who were themselves artists or aspiring artists. They really got their start in the wake of World War I. Uh, many of them participate in city government in the interwar years. Um, as they're all leftists, but more on the socialist side than the communist side. And then they become the real agents of the building of a new culture um, once communist regimes come to power in the wake of World War II. All of those pieces are brought in, right, are filtered in, establishing that continuity that you spoke of. I'm thinking of the, the, the anecdote with which you start your first chapter of this uh, 60, what, he was two at the time, year old gentleman stepping out of a Soviet tank, uh, Boleslav Drobner, who was already well known. And I'm think, I was thinking to myself, you know, okay, maybe it wouldn't have been PC from the standpoint of the, uh, the Red Army commissars to be referencing Red Vienna or Austro-Marxism or other interwar experiments, but he saw a lot of stuff. Uh, and not just what he saw after he got back from his Novosibirsk exile within the USSR and actually became palatable and uh, someone who could serve the the project of building communism. So, I mean, I, 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 I think the homegrown point, I and mean, we're obviously going to talk a lot about the homegrown point, but are there other influences that are worth bringing in that maybe aren't Soviet? Well, it's the ones that you mentioned, right? So it is, there are figures like Dropner, right, who is a city councilor involved in, in Krakow government, um, in the 20s and 30s, then, as you said, goes into exile in the Soviet Union, um, 
active in the uh, Union of Polish Patriots, comes back to Poland. There's an analogous figure, in my telling at least, in Leipzig. Um, his name is Rudolf Hartig. He is also a socialist city official, administrator in the 20s and 30s, uh, actually a cause celebre in leftist circles after being imprisoned in the wake of the Bavarian Republic and its, its failure. And he takes over, as does Drobner, the cultural apparatus at the city level. So I think those socialist continuities are really important. But you asked about other roots, right? Well, probably they extend beyond socialism specifically. There is the deep root, and this really goes back to the 19th century, of culture as a civilizing mission, as um, a calling for the nation, as something that really um, takes on the mantle of political affairs in an era when politics is not so open to the people. And that is less political, but certainly even more non-Soviet, right? Um, I think all of those continuities are necessary to ground the project that is certainly Soviet-inflected, and it is chosen by design, right? So some of these figures, of course, are there on the ground when the new regimes are being set up, so they are natural allies, but there is also a very conscious selection on the part of communist leaders to say, look, this has to be, to work, this needs to have local roots. And that's part of why there is a real attention to art and artists, because they are seen as carriers of the national tradition. They are seen as figures that can help to connect the communism that is being built up with the national cultures that are in place. I really like this idea that you set out in, in the first chapter, sticking for, for a moment with the early part of the story of reconstruction as revolution. This idea, what you just described, of rebuilding selectively some of what had existed prior to the war and marrying it to these new and larger goals. And let me maybe take that as a point of departure for uh, a bigger question that I wanted to ask, which, you know, this is for the benefit of our listeners. I think in the, there's a very well-established historiography of cultural production under uh, state socialism. But if someone's coming to our conversation and doesn't know that historiography, what are the limits of what you're talking about when you talk about culture? Is it uh, obviously, I've read the book, so I know it's highbrow and lowbrow and everything in between. But would you include um, pornography? Would you include uh, vulgarisms? What, what would you What would you include? What would you exclude? And what was included or excluded by your administrators? So my uh, my answer to that question connects to the last thing you said, which is I really want to use culture as an actor's category. And as I said, that was my starting point. I wanted to understand what officials meant by it, right? Each of these cities and also every branch of administration in these cities has something called a culture department, right? Or, or a culture section that's endemic in communist regimes. So one of my guiding questions was, well, what did they mean by this, right? This is, of course, partly a way of ducking the grand question of what is culture, but it is also an attempt not to impose my own definition onto them, which you alluded to the literature. I think it tends to do that to some extent. But to ask, well, what was this to them? What did they mean by it? And most of the time, what they meant was not so different from what we mean by it, right? The New York Times publishes an arts and culture supplement on Sundays, and it's more or less the same material, right? Theater, literature, painting, um, cinema. It is, it certainly includes the high arts, but it does cut across some of these genres that we often use in scholarly work, right? It cuts across categories such as high and mass. That's obviously a key goal for communist regimes is to, if not merge those two, then to make high culture, mass culture. Um, and so I think my approach, right, to that question is to look at what 
officials understood by this. Now, pornography was typically out, though there's certainly a lot of erotica, especially in, in East Germany, that, that would fall under this. Um, but these are capacious categories that I think map on fairly well to kind of our own intuitive sense of what is art and culture. I mean, one of the things that I like most about the book is the fact that you're dialoguing, uh, the really constructing a dialogue between evidence of what the administrators were saying and thinking and evidence of feedback that they were getting from uh, the receiving end. So audience isn't necessarily the right term, or it's only partly the right term, but more generally, what culture became or didn't become uh, and how that changed with the passage of time. One phrase that I really liked when you were introducing your concept for culture is this idea that there was a kaleidoscope of color, that it wasn't black and white. And clearly, you know, there's a conversation to which you're, uh, you're, you're, you're making, I think, a really important contribution that not everything is about the origins of dissident movements and not everything is about collaboration, uh, right? Not everything is black and white. But if I can just prod you for a second, uh, in terms of the overall chronology of the book, right? Because you really do cover the entire communist period uh, in these countries. Do you feel like there were moments where it was more about the, where it was more black and white and gray, uh, and versus other moments where it became more colorful. Yeah. Um, well, let me start to answer that first by kind of zooming out and maybe recapping what you alluded to, which is that my point of entry into this field, and as you say, there's a large historiography of, of culture under communism, but my point of entry was... Uh, the, in part, the concept of space, right, and the and the idea of cultural spaces. Because what really struck me as I was doing this is that we have, I think, broadly speaking, two ways of writing about art and artists in the block, right? One is culture as indoctrination, as propaganda. So a theater, right? What the sometimes is called the official cultural spaces, like theaters and galleries. Those are places where you go and you get the party line. And conversely, you have this other approach and this other narrative, which turns it on its head, which sees spaces of culture as bastions of resistance, of independence. This is the kind of dissident narrative that you alluded to. And there the idea is here are islands of freedom in a sea of control. Uh, this is where you get oppositional voices, alternative visions, right? Something that kind of is separate from the state. And what really struck me in looking at the city level, where there's only so many physical spaces to look at, this X number of theaters, right? In both of these cities, five, six, seven theaters. In the same space, you get both of these visions, right? These are at least in my reading, not separate worlds, an official culture and, and the dissident culture, but spaces where both are present and often present at the same time, and hence in dialogue with each other. And this is what I mean when I talk about color rather than black and white. You know, I really kind of wanted to get away from this juxtaposition that we often have of official and unofficial, right, or, or countercultural. Because it seemed to me that these, you know, that the, the reducing culture under communism to those two poles did have a flattening effect, where even if you kind of recognized shades of gray and, and cooperation, collaboration, right, even in framing the question in those terms, there was a lot you were losing because even dissent then becomes defined by opposition to communism. Um, what struck me about these spaces is the multiplicity of visions, the plurality, right? How many different expressions you could have, which wouldn't fit onto that continuum between state and dissent. And now to come back to your original question, there are absolutely moments when this is a more colorful place than others. And certainly uh, if we bring in the comparative dimension of the book, there are moments when these two cities are very different in terms of uh, 
what kind of color is present, right? Uh, on the whole, my broad findings probably will not be that surprising. I do think, you know, there's a lot more color in both cities in the 60s than in the in the early 50s. But I think even then, what I see, and I know I'm talked about the kind of disconnects, right, and, and not seeing continuity, I suppose I do see an important continuity in that for me, these spaces continue to function, right, as these sites of expression and a diversity of expression, even at times when they were the most harshly controlled. Yeah, I, I, I was going to take this uh, point that you were just making and maybe ask if you don't mind peeling back the the, the covers for a second and taking uh, the listeners and myself um, into your creative process for a minute. So how do you how did you decide how to structure this story and whom to follow? Uh, because obviously the players do change, and especially if you're talking about administrators, potentially there are too many players to follow with any coherence. Um, Drobner was around for a while, if I remember correctly, but of course he was one guy and there was a whole apparatus and then there were local realities. And then of course there are the actual artists, the actual producers of culture and the audiences and all of these intermingle. So how did you decide whom or what to follow when you were laying out for yourself the structure of the book? Yeah, that's a great question. It, you know, I, I talked about my circuitous path to this topic. This was also a, a, a circuitous process because I came in um, naively, really focusing on the officials, on culture departments, right? And you're right, there's a range of officials. Um, I think certainly by the 1960s, as a rough rule of thumb, right, there's at least 100 functionaries in each city that is the core focus specifically on cultural affairs. So there's lots of figures one, one could follow. But what happened in the course of working on this, for reasons I alluded to earlier, I realized that those were not the only actors, right? Uh, I realized that if I did want to understand even something um, relatively narrow, like the making of cultural policy, I had to look well beyond the culture department because that's where officials themselves were looking. So that was my point of entry. That was a little bit of a filtering mechanism, I suppose, to start with culture department files and sort of see where they led me. And then on top of that, I started paying attention to the other characters who were there. And that took me to some unexpected places. Uh, one of them, this is not something I thought would be a big part of the story, was public opinion polling. Um, I had no idea coming into this that the story of cultural policy would be so closely tied to the rise of public opinion polling in the Eastern Bloc. But one of the arguments I make in the book that public opinion really starts out in cultural spaces. It starts out as asking audiences about their preferences for radio and, and television, sometimes even going door to door to ask what kinds of movies people liked. And I tried to follow those new directions um, as much as I could, but of course it is fundamentally an impressionistic project, right? Um, I am trying to, um, you know, I think in, in trying to reconstruct this category of culture as officials understand it, there is a lot of ground that I am trying to cover. And it does mean there's a lot that had to get cut out. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the opinion polling. I mean, I also love, I, I think in general, all of your chapters start with really great little snapshots uh, that, that the the snapshot of the Leipzig pollers who come to the door and everyone's thinking, oh no, it's the Stasi, right? <laughs> and th this is a question that I wanted to pose in a couple of minutes because I want to talk more about the Stalinist period first and the 1950s, that it's hard for me to imagine uh, public opinion polling, the way that maybe we could talk about it in the final two decades of, uh, of, of communism in the Eastern Bloc, but understood through the lens of the first five to 10 years 
of communism when the options are being narrowed. And in your story, the the highlight, of course, is taking culture into the factories and taking culture producers into the factories and bring the factories back into whatever sites of culture mattered the most. But if I can maybe just pose a question that I think will really help our listeners uh, understand the overall arc of your book, what is it about Stalinism that actually helped to facilitate the emergence of pluralism and the emergence of uh, a culture, what you call a cultural public sphere? Right. You're right. That is, that is, I think, a really important development. Um, It's the ambition. It's the utopian aspirations and the totalizing aspirations of Stalinist policy. The idea that all workers, and of course, since this is Stalinism, the focus is squarely on production, right? All workers must be exposed to art and to the right kinds of art. And in that sense, you talked about the kind of narrowing of options. I think there's, of course, a lot of truth to that, especially from artists' point of view. But the flip side of that is as, let's say, creative horizons are brought into a tighter range, opportunities for artists to perform, to make art, to exhibit, to reach a public, all of those reach unprecedented heights because this communist state is both communist states that I write about. They're committed to a project of cultural enlightenment, to a project of using culture to teach and educate and really civilize workers. And so there is an extraordinary effort to make art widely available, to be sure, but also to make artists prominent in society. This is an era when uh, the number of art academy students really balloons because there are so many jobs that must be filled. This is an era when there is state funding and state commissions for, of course, certain kinds of art, but art nonetheless. And so there is an enormous buildup of this cultural infrastructure. And I call it the state cultural matrix as a way of describing all of the resources, facilities, infrastructure for building and managing and promoting art. And it really is a product of Stalinism, which leads to some really paradoxical and maybe counterintuitive effects as the political situation starts to shift when all of the institutions designed to bring culture to the masses are adapted and refashioned and transformed because they already exist, right? So to give just one example, a lot of those Stalinist structures that I just mentioned created in order to, yes, promote communism to workers, both in Poland and East Germany, those become central in the rise of rock and roll and rock music, right? It is, of course, a Western genre, and the West is a prime mover, and Western radio is a prime mover in popularizing rock. But all of those clubs and all of those worker uh, performances that Stalinism promotes, the F the emphasis on amateur art and the idea of making art oneself, that system, that infrastructure becomes a very fruitful soil for the rise of young rockers in the late 50s and and early 60s. So one of the arguments of the book is how productive communist cultural policy and infrastructure is, right? I think we, again, tend to think of policy as restrictive and limiting. We, again, fully understandably think about the ways in which communism restricts and censors and limits artistic production. But one of the themes of the book is how the communist system actually gives rise to a lot of cultural forms and cultural activities that are not expressly ideological and, in fact, often at odds with the ruling orthodoxy. 
So let's follow the example of rock music. I'm really glad you brought it up. Obviously, there are two ways to slice at this. There's homegrown and there's import. And of course, both were a big deal in the 50s and 60s. I guess more than rock, right? I think you, you talk about Stan Getz performing in the, in the early 1960s. Uh, obviously, as the we get into the 60s and 70s, we can talk about the Rolling Stones. We can talk about a whole explosion of uh, uh, English, French language, musical uh, phenomena that really capture the minds. And I'm thinking also of my parents' generation here, capture the the hearts and minds and bodies to some extent of uh, the youth. And I feel like there's an interesting question about generations and generational loyalties that came up for me while I was reading the chapters that transition across that divide. And I know the divides are different in the two countries, right? 1953 is and isn't a divide in pretty fundamental ways in the history of the GDR. Uh, 1956 definitely was a major divide in the history of Poland, but I think in the history of the GDR as well, uh, in the way that you frame your narrative. So I'm curious, was there, can we, can we apply those traditional caesura to the kinds of generations that would have then chosen, gee, am I going to go hear a concert by the Skaldovie or Dva Plus Jeden on the one hand, or am I going to, you know, listen to Chubby Checker and Stan Getz. Yeah. Um, generation is is a really interesting way to look at this, partly because it does broaden our horizon beyond communist policy and beyond uh, communist regimes, right? Part of the answer to the question you just posed, right? How would one choose what concert to go to? Yes, that is certainly conditioned by what happens in Warsaw and Berlin and the Bloc, but a lot of it is conditioned by what happens in London and New York and elsewhere. And in that sense, the Bloc is very much part of the broader world. It's not disconnected from the West and not only by necessity, because television and radio signals can reach, but by design that a lot of the communist officials that I write about are very aware of not only having to put up with the West, but wanting to incorporate the West, right? Sometimes to one-up the West, sometimes to make Western culture accessible. And part of that has to do with their own awareness that they need to draw the public in. I know you've alluded to the chronology of the book. And for listeners, um, I'll just say there's the book is structured in three parts, and we talk. You know, one of them is Stalinism, which we've we've touched on. The next is national communism, and um, uh, the third is actually existing socialism. I used that periodization to reflect different ways of seeing society and interacting with society on the part of state officials, and to focus on. The transition that we're discussing now, 53, 56, right, let's say somewhere in there, uh, there is an awareness brought home by revolt and uprising in both of those years that communist officials need to do something differently, that the Stalinist model is not working. And, of course, that is in part a kind of top-down story. It has to do with the Soviet Union's reckoning, and obviously 53, Stalin's death, 56, secret speech, right? There is the external factor to those changes. But it is also brought home, I would say just as much, by the bottom-up pressures of having to build communism in societies that are not behaving according to plan. And officials in both Poland and East Germany are extremely aware and extremely explicit about the need to approach people differently, to try something else. And I think that's where this vision of national communism comes in. This is also where the vision of rock and roll and openness comes in. In many ways, the idea that you have to give the people some part of what they want, that 
the way to build communism, right, is not through repeated indoctrination and beating heads against walls, which is unsuccessful, but rather uh, some measure of carrot rather than stick may be more effective. And so I think one thing that really stood out to me was how much communist officials embrace rock and roll, especially in Poland. This is not just a state sanctioned, but a state promoted project. It is uh, as much an object of communist cultural policy as socialist realism and Stalinist era efforts, right? Um, We tend to talk about change over time and the kind of evolution of communism in terms of quantity of rule, the idea that, you know, the regime is less present or less forceful. And to me, it's that seems quite limited. Uh, the regime is not less present. In fact, it's much more present, I would argue, in, in, in the 1960s. But it's the quality of rule that changes. It's the approach. It is the goals and policies. And for me, cultural policy becomes a kind of lens onto those broader transformations. It's fascinating discussing this with you. I mean, hearing you talk, it sounds to some extent like you're saying also the regime, and obviously I'm essentializing here, but broadly that the apparatus of power got smarter. <laughs> and and actually cared about processing data. And now maybe we can come back to those public opinion polls to which you alluded. If I could just ask you maybe to not tell just a little bit, I don't want you to bring reveal too much from the book, but tell us a little story that maybe will con- connect or contrast uh, how this looked in Leipzig versus how this looked in Krakow. Uh, what were the uh, cultural counselors, committee members actually able to learn and how did they apply it in the 1960s? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question because, of course, the structure of the book is, as I mentioned, it is uh, an entangled history. It looks at Krakow and Leipzig side by side. So the structure is chronological and I try to tell this as one coherent story. But when you look at these cities side by side, what you see often are differences, right? That's what's so clear. And what you're discussing now, there is a real difference in how officials process information and also in how they understand that information, right? What they see as the goal of learning about the public. And I think a lot of that is conditioned by geopolitics. East Germany is, of course, p- part of a divided nation. It has an open border in Berlin until 1961. East Germany is in a position where to create a national communism or something that resembles a national communism, officials first have to build an East German nation. And building an East German nation means that you do want to know what the people think and want, because otherwise the process, as they learned the hard way, doesn't take root. But it also means shifting and changing and manipulating what the people think and want, because otherwise you end up with West Germany. And so East German officials are walking this real tightrope. And of course, rock and roll is a prime example. They want to have rock and roll because they want their young people to not feel deprived, especially once the wall walls them in. But at the same time, they can't sing in English, for instance, because that would be far too close to West Germany. And the central paradox of the GDR is if it becomes too much like West Germany, it loses its reason to exist. So there is, you know, that whole project of national communism is so fraught in the GDR precisely because you want to know what the people want and then you don't really want to give it to them. You want to slowly, you want to use that information, right, in ways um, that can help you transform opinions and desires. And that's very much reflected in how the polling industry develops. And um, you alluded to one of the anecdotes I, I, I cite in the book. There are Leipzig officials that go door to door in this working class neighborhood in the early 60s 
and they ask people what they like. And then when they get the answer, they record the answer, but then they say, actually, no, you should like why, right? You should prefer this instead. There is this kind of didacticism that's in many ways part of the polling apparatus, and that does shift a bit over time. Poland, uh, in many ways, has has the easier um, has it easier, right? Uh, the the Polish regime under Gomułka can very clearly say, we want to embrace national traditions. We want to really learn what people want and we want to deliver on it. And I think that possibility, right, having the option of doing so, it certainly does buy popularity and stability, but it comes at a very steep long-term cost. Well, this is a fascinating point. I'm going to follow up on that last point you were just making, which is, of course, that to a point, uh, it was possible to give in Poland even, right, to some extent what people wanted. And the humor and, of course, cabaret life, I think, really emerged out of this sort of in parallel with rock and roll. But the theater, then the theater, of course, is where we see so many problematic cases in each phase of your story. Uh, I know maybe it's almost a uh, cliche in the context of the history of communist Poland to talk about the uh, the the premature end to the run of Mickiewicz's Jade or Forefather's Eve, right, which kickstarted, of course, the March 1968 protests. But this is a very clear example, right, where a response that was squarely in the domain of cultural policy, basically blew open uh, what one, what, you know, the, this this model, which I know you're resisting, of, of resistance and collaboration. So I'm curious, you know, given what you've been saying, if we take that kind of a hotspot, if you will, where, okay, 56 in Poznan started with workers, but 1968, it starts with culture. And I'm just curious if you feel like that was sort of hitting a limit, hitting a ceiling on the process you were just describing of selectively cherry picking what the regime would be willing to honor among the preferences of its citizens, or was there something else going on? Yeah. Well, I'll first say, right, there's a reason that this starts with culture, and that's because for communist officials, Culture is a symptom of broader social conditions, right? Um, This is why they are so attentive to cultural policy in the first place, because they realize it's not actually about culture. It is about politics. It is about society. This Stalinist project that we talked about, its goal is not the churning out of odes to Lenin. Its goal is the effect that culture will have on the people who see it and hear it right? Cultural policy is always a social and political project. And it becomes extremely apparent in 1968, right, at the shuttering of Jade, where the part of the reason that the regime responds to it as it does is because it views that play as symptomatic of broader unrest, of something brewing, right? Cultural policy, and or I should say culture and cultural expression, becomes a kind of seismograph for public opinion, uh, often shorthand for public opinion, especially in, in those moments of crisis. And I do think, yes, it does reflect in that moment, and not only in that moment, a fear of having allowed too much, right? A fear of having expanded the public sphere too far. And that is also a paradox of national communism. The idea that if national communism becomes too national, it might not be communism at all. And I think that's very much on the mind of the Polish leadership in 68. Uh, Jada, of course, right, is not only a great Polish play, but it is staged it, in begins this run in, in, in late 1967 as the National Theater's contribution to the 50th anniversary of October. It is there chosen symbolically to represent the Polish road to communism. And the politics, of course, is front and center, and that's exactly what the regime responds to. Um, the term that circulated around Warsaw at the time, uh, especially in regards to rock and roll, 
was controlled revolt. The idea that so much of this cultural expression is meant to be a controlled revolt. You want to create the openness both to vent frustration and to bind people to state structures, but you want to allow room for revolt, but you want to control it. And of course, the challenge with revolt of any kind is that it is very hard to control. And so I do think we see that in 68 in Poland, we see it in East Germany in 1965, slightly before. This idea of needing to crack down on revolt and in fact, to come up with a very different model of rule, um, which I think kind of takes us towards the, the last part of the book and this idea of actually existing socialism. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that in just a minute. I did want to ask a question about geography because I realized in posing the question about uh Jadin Mitskevich, of course, I'm moving away from your chosen second cities. And here's maybe the right moment to ask the question, you know, what is for you the, uh, actually, okay, there's a two-part question. First, what's the value added of shifting the lens away from the capital cities to the second cities? I know that's a big question, but if we can maybe stick with the the 60s for a second, uh, and in particular, whether you take 65 in the GDR or 1968 in Poland, how were things different looking at Leipzig and Kraków than they would be if we were looking at East Berlin and Warsaw? Yeah, I think they're quite different, right? So I wanted to look at a city and the set of cities, because I wanted to see how cultural policy functioned on the ground, right? Not just how it's supposed to work, not just the regulations, but the practice. So that was the idea behind finding uh, a case study of some kind. And you're right, I did want to avoid capitals, uh, partly because well, for one thing, East Berlin, right, is a very unusual capital. It's a divided city. It is a poor analog to to Warsaw in that sense. It has its own dynamics, but still every city has its own dynamics. And that's true of my two, right? Uh, I chose Krakow and Leipzig for reasons of convenience in large part that these are, as you said, renowned as second cities in their countries, renowned as cultural capitals. They have intense concentrations of artists and cultural institutions. So it they make, I think, for good lenses onto the dynamics that I want to explore. But these are certainly not representative of their countries, right? But one thing, their cities, that already makes them unrepresentative. Uh, but they do have, um, they're very different from the rest of each country and, and certainly from each other. So for me, the goal of looking at them together and looking at those specific cities was not to say this is exactly how things would be in, in Warsaw or, or Berlin, but it is a way to capture dynamics of what I talk about as, as the public sphere in a way that I think does shed light on um, processes that are not purely local. Because I think what we see on the ground is the kind of interaction between artists, officials, city residents, that no question would have different um, intonations, would, would look somewhat differently elsewhere, but I do think is maybe uh, indicative of broader trends, including national trends. So now's the time to start talking about actually existing socialism. And I, I think the way that I wanted to... to, to encourage you if i mean talk about however you want but it is to 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 consider the following it seemed that in spite of the the the, the kaleidoscope of color framing you did bring out dissent and it's hard not to when you're talking about the era of actually existing socialism right there's a different pattern of consumption introduced the relationship the logic is totally different and there's just more going on uh also in the transnational sphere. So what you just said about there, there being more going on than just the local, I'm curious if you feel like the era of actually existing socialism was 
precisely a time where local, national, and transnational had a more dynamic interaction, or if uh, there are the specific national stories are ultimately determinative of how we should see the two cases you're reconstructing. No, I think you're right. I think it is a more dynamic interaction, uh, largely thanks to new technologies, uh, greater availability of information and media, certainly about the West, um, but also about each other. Right? Poland and East Germany are, this is a, a running thread through the book, you know, residents and officials and artists, they're closely watching each other, right? They are aware that they're engaged in parallel projects. And in fact, I make the argument that we should think about the Eastern Bloc as a transnational public sphere, right? As a space where developments in one part affect the other. And I think you see that very clearly with Krakow and Leipzig. Since you brought up dissent, you know, something that uh, really stood out to me and I was reading these files is they become sister cities uh, in 1973. There are now formal exchange partnerships that are instituted. And so there's a lot of movement between Krakow and Leipzig, mostly among officials, but also among, among artists and other delegations. And one of the things that both uh, Krakowians and Leipzigers ask each other when they visit is about dissent. They say, we've heard, right, that you have this rising problem of dissent. We have one too. And this is absolutely, I think, a sign of that importance, right, of transnational connections that, that you reference. And I think that part of that has been there all along because the same exchanges, even if somewhat less formalized, had existed from before. But there is a, a greater um, integration, certainly, that, that, that comes in the 70s and 80s. To your, I think you started by, by kind of saying, how does that rise of dissent sort of uh, change things or maybe how, how does it fit? I think it, part of what really shifts is that there start to emerge spaces outside of the state cultural matrix which is a real departure. And it's much more true in Poland than in the GDR. But one of the central arguments of the book is that because they, because uh, regime and society, right, but both supporters and opponents occupy the same space, they gather in the same theaters and galleries, that those are spaces of, of negotiation, contestation, interaction. Well, by the late 1970s, especially in Poland, you have an alternative infrastructure that comes into being, right? Um, what the what Czech dissidents would call a parallel polis, its own network of, of institutions that is increasingly looking not to challenge the state or to engage with the state, but to replace it, to create its own infrastructure. And that's much harder to do in East Germany, uh, not least because there is a West Germany that already does it. So there's a, East German dissidents have a much harder time creating their own spaces. But I think, you know, that is a really major shift, right? Uh, what changes for me I, is not simply the rise of oppositional attitudes, because certainly those are not new, but it is the infrastructure. And again, to use my term, the cultural matrix that allows some of those attitudes to develop into an integrated oppositional movement. I, I'm thinking also of the, the pedagogical, I think, uh, ripples that, that the, the, the conclusions you were just describing would have. I, I realized you know, while I was reading the book and especially with the focus on theater, but, but more generally across different media in this era we've been talking about the last few minutes of uh, dissent and actually existing socialism, that there may be, I think, you know, even let's say if we don't teach your entire book to undergrads, I think your book has important lessons for undergrad pedagogy when it comes to the history of 
communist Eastern Europe because of some of the implications of what you're saying. And I say this as someone who uses, for example, the film The Lives of Others <laughs> as a foil in a couple of my seminars. It's not the only thing that I would show about East Germany in the 80s, but I think it's an important point of reference. And most students have already seen it by the time they get to my seminar. But you know, likewise, we could even pick films actually from the era, Man of Marble or Man of Iron, right? I mean, this is part of the infrastructure you're talking about. And you talk about Vaida toward the end of the book as having sort of been honored belatedly in a more transnational frame. But I'm curious, uh, if you're making recommendations to those among our listeners who do teach the history of culture under communism in Eastern Europe, what do you think your book should have them change? You don't have to say everything, but one or two things that come to mind. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I can speak maybe more narrowly about how it's uh, changed how I teach, right? And and how I've kind of framed the narrative of the Eastern Bloc. I think one thing that still remains in place, despite a lot of good scholarship that challenges it uh, more or less explicitly, is the narrative arc of the Bloc as a morality play in two acts. Right. Um, in Act One, you have the imposition of a brutal totalitarian dictatorship, the crushing of Eastern Europe. And in Act Two, you have the heroic liberation of local societies from communist rule. Um, in Act One, right, the state is invincible. In the second, it's a Jew. Everything sort of changes. And so many, uh, I think, treatments of our field by those writing maybe from outside of it tend to take that kind of arc. Uh, communist officials in Act 1, dissidents in Act 2. What really changed in my teaching in the course of working on this was teaching um, and focusing on evolution, right? Not the rise and fall, but the transformations. And the transformations wrought uh, in large part by communism, um, the way in which this political system, despite the ways in which it was flawed and challenged and limited, the effect that it had, the deep impact it made on Poland and Germany, the way in which it transformed even those that wanted nothing to do with it and, and rebelled against it. So for me, I think teaching the evolution of communism has become a major point of emphasis. And to your point, that has an impact on how we talk about communism's collapse, right? Um, in fact, not as something that simply collapses, but as something that um, continues to evolve and in some ways uh, reforms itself out of existence, right? The, the, the ways in which Polish and East German attempts to deal with the growth of dissent and opposition in the 1980s create the conditions that then make 1989 possible. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time, but I want to stick with, uh, with your just published book for a minute before moving on to your net new work. Uh, and I want to ask about the 21st century afterlife of the story and its implications. So uh, you end the book, among others, by discussing what it might have meant to those in Krakow who remembered how the system worked, uh, even in those maybe, you know, rosier years where the system was reforming itself out of existence, as you just described. Uh, but in, when in 2017, Jan Klata, the director of the Sovatsky Theater, was fired by... <laughs> the, the Starry Theater. Right. I'm sorry. The Stade Theater was fired by the Minister of Culture, Griniski, from Law and Justice. Um, I'm curious if you feel like that's a one-off point or if, in other words, is that more of a kind of insider baseball implication for Poland or is it something we can generalize a little bit more? And then the second part of the question, as I'm going to pose it, is... Uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic, because I was struck by a turn of phrase in your introduction where you were talking about the power of a live captive audience being inimitable. And of course, 
you know, we can, I think, think beyond the contingent historical implications and lessons of your story. And I'm curious if you think the kind of relationship or feedback process that you trace here is possible at all anywhere anymore. Ideology neutral question, but clearly leaning toward uh, a, an understanding of authoritarian regimes collecting information and trying to constrain information to. Yeah, uh, I do think there is a broader implication, and I think we're seeing it, right, both in Poland and elsewhere. Uh, certainly, Russia comes to mind. So the incident you referenced, right, so you, the Starry Theater's director, Jan Klata, is is forced to resign. Um, you brought up the Swalowski. The Swalowski's director also nearly is forced to resign. His fate seems to be up in the air right now, so it's certainly more than a one-off. But... I remember I was uh, in Krakow right as this was happening. I attended one of the last performances of uh, Klata's directorship. And it was incredible to be in that space because it felt like stepping back in time. You know, I spent so many hours reading files about the Stary Theater in its heyday in the 1970s with Vaida and Swinarski and others. And what everyone wrote about was this extraordinary atmosphere, this sense of community and togetherness and the charge that permeated the theater. And it was incredible to be there in 2017 and feel it again, to be part of this experience where some people are booing and walking out, people are clapping, standing. It really is a raucous event. It's not at all what one might expect of certainly not um, Anglo-Saxon theater. But it did really bring home to me the fact that the phenomenon I wrote about in the book is still with us, right? The possibility of cultural spaces to serve as public spheres, I think that's still very much alive. And in fact, I end the book by talking about what I think are two important preconditions for that, right? One is that political expression needs to be curtailed in some way that, in other words, people turn to spaces of culture when they feel like they can't express themselves in other institutions. And again, I think that's familiar enough to us here at home, right? The uh, curtailing of political rights is not unique to communist Eastern Europe. And the second part, the second condition, is that governments have to care about it. Uh, in practice, I think almost all do, right? Very few governments are completely indifferent to cultural matters. But again, with the rise of a global far right, that is extremely attentive to questions of identity, symbolism, representation, and culture is often a major point of emphasis. So I think, if anything, we are likely to see a resurgence in the role of cultural spaces. And maybe that's a somewhat heartening thought. You know, uh, when Klata was dismissed and around the controversy in the Solotsky Theater, artists understandably and rightly speak in dire language about the death of art, that, you know, what the regime wants is the death of art, and they should. But I think one of the conclusions I drew from my own work is that, in fact, that attempt to police and control cultural spaces often produces the opposite. It makes art more lively, more valuable, more far-reaching than ever. And so I think we are seeing that today, that especially in increasingly authoritarian societies, cultural spaces are becoming uh, really important sites of political discussion and debate. This is a heartening thought. I'm very glad to be sort of closing the discussion of your important new book by thinking that really, you know, maybe we're not all going to hell quite so quickly. But, uh, Carol, if I may just ask by way of closing, what are you thinking about writing next or what are you working on now? Yeah, so I am... Uh shifting from one cultural bureaucracy to another, and I'm turning towards UNESCO. Uh, so a somewhat grander scale, but actually born in much the same era as communists era um, ministries of culture. 
and attempting to do not unrelated things. And what really interests me in the story of UNESCO is how it came to be associated with the concept of heritage. So today, right, when we think of UNESCO, we think of the World Heritage List, but the list only gets going in 1978. That's 33 years after UNESCO's founding. And if you look at its founding documents or its early years, heritage is not something that UNESCO officials care very much about. So what I'm trying to figure out is how does heritage become so central to UNESCO and how does it become so central to our modern world right now? You know, I I teach at the University of Virginia in 2017 when uh, white neo-Nazis descended on Charlottesville, they claimed they were protecting their heritage. So um, what I want to uh, get a better sense of is where does that language come from and how has UNESCO helped to promote it? This is a hugely important project, and I can't wait to see what it what it proves. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your work and for talking with me, Kirill. Uh, I commend really to all of our listeners Kirill Kunahovich's brand new book out with Cornell University Press entitled Communism's Public Sphere, Culture as Politics in Cold War Poland and East Germany. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much, Brother.